there is an expression uh, that goes something like, the first person to start yelling loses the argument. Essentially, it means that even if you have the best arguments, even if you make all the right points, if you lose your cool and you start screaming and getting fanatic, then people will stop listening. They will assume that you've lost all credibility and that now you've just resorted to being angry. And this is based off of something very true. When we start yelling and screaming and making a lot of noise, sometimes it looks like we're overcompensating, like we don't have much of an argument. So all we can do is raise our voice. And so often, cooler heads prevail. In our text here, in our psalm, we have a sort of confidence that produces silence. Much like someone in an argument, if they have confidence in their position, they don't have to scream. They don't have to name call and slander. They can simply rest in the truth. In our text today, we have a sort of confidence like this. Verse number one says, For God alone my soul waits in silence. It's repeated again in verse number five. For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence. Now, this doesn't mean that God is silent, that they're waiting for God to hear them or speak to them. Uh, we do see that in other psalms, but that's not what this psalm is saying. Here, the singer is silently waiting for God's salvation. It is the singer who is silent. They are waiting for God to act on their behalf. There is a confidence here. There is a surety that God is the refuge of the believer so that even in the face of great persecution, they can keep a cool and collected composure. Now today I want us to notice this word silence. And I want us to look at this text under three headings. The first is a silent justice. The second is a silent patience. And the third is a silent savior. A silent justice, patience, and savior. Now, as we look at this text and we talk about silence, I don't mean a complete and total silence, as in no words spoken at all, nothing done at all. The psalmist, he speaks to himself. He speaks to his enemies. He speaks to the people of God. Even in the end of the psalm, he addresses God. He is speaking. He is acting. But this silence here, it refers to a meek, submissive dependence on God alone that results in a peaceful composure, both in words and in action. So with this understanding of silence, let us look together at a silent justice. We see this throughout scripture and we see it here in verses 3 and 4. David and the church, they cry out, How long will you attack a man to batter him? Like a leaning wall, a tottering fence. They only plan to thrust him down from his high position. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. This is sung by the people when they are oppressed. This is sung when enemies are surrounding them, seeking their life, seeking their livelihood, coming after them, attacking their faith. 
They cry out singing, how long? This is a repeated attack that doesn't let up. This comes from a position of power and influence. They use false accusations, lies, and misrepresentations. They beat with the sole purpose of bringing the church down. And notice in their eyes, no justice is waiting for them. To the people, it feels as if God might be silent. They're crying out, how long, O Lord, until you act? Those attacking, they feel that God is silent. They feel that they can get away with it, that nothing will happen. At this moment, it feels like justice is silent, that it's non-existent. We see this over and over in other Psalms as well. In fact, if you were to look at Psalm 94, uh, this idea is brought out in great detail. Uh, in the first seven verses there, it says, O Lord God of vengeance, O God of vengeance, shine forth. Rise up, O judge of the earth. Repay to the proud what they deserve. O Lord, how long shall the wicked, how long shall the wicked exult? They pour out their arrogant words, all the evildoers boast. They crush your people, O Lord, and afflict your heritage. They kill the widow and the sojourner. They murder the fatherless. And notice, they say, the Lord does not see. The God of Jacob does not perceive. In both of these passages, there is a cry for God to bring about justice on those who attack his people. In both passages, there is a cry to the people, how long will you continue this? And in both passages, the oppressors, those afflicting the church, they pay no mind to God. It's as if he were not there to begin with. Once again, it is as if justice is silent. This apparent silence from God is often very difficult to us. It's difficult when we read other passages in the Bible. In fact, there have been times when we have read psalms or passages like Psalm 103, verse 6, that very simply say, The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. Now we can sing that, we can believe that, but I'm sure sometimes we look around the world and we question, can we really say this with confidence? That God works justice and righteousness for the oppressed? I mean, how many people have died this weekend for the name of Christ? How many people have been died and forgotten? And we might wonder, where is their justice? If God says that he is the avenger of the righteous, then why doesn't he act? How long will the wicked be allowed to persecute his people? The wicked say, ha, I'm getting away with it. The church says, look, Lord, they are getting away with it. Sometimes we feel like Job when he says, behold, I cry out violence, but I am not answered. I call for help, but there is no justice. The preacher in Ecclesiastes, he makes a very interesting observation about the world that I'm sure many have made before. In Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 16, he says, Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there, was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, 
even there was wickedness. He looks out into the world and he looks at the places where justice is supposed to be, but he sees corruption and he sees wickedness. He looks at the courts and he sees wicked judges. We could say he looks at the police and he sees corrupt officers. We could say that he looks at the churches and he sees corrupt pastors and ministers. Where he would expect to see righteousness and justice, instead he sees wickedness. But he goes on and he says something that we must realize, something that puts his mind at ease. In the following verse, Ecclesiastes 3.17, it says, I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked. For there is a time for every matter and for every work. This is comforting to the Christians to remember that no matter what we see in this life, God has fixed a time of judgment. We remember that justice is not limited to sinful men. Even if it seems like the wicked get away with it, even if it seems like the innocent go their entire lives without receiving justice, we know that in the end, God does care for his people. And he is the avenger for them. And he does bring vengeance on those who afflict them wrongfully. We've been looking at the news recently and we've been seeing that there are missionaries in Haiti. There are Christians in Afghanistan. We're always remembered of the Christians above us in North Korea who throughout generations probably are wondering, how long, Lord, will we suffer for your name? But we see in Revelation chapter 6, there's a glimpse of the martyrs in heaven And it's very interesting what we see here. We can actually pull a lot of light onto our text just from this passage in Revelation. It goes to the martyrs in heaven and they cry out, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. Notice how scripture is so united in its teaching on this. These saints in heaven are still singing this psalm in a sense. They're going to the Lord and saying, how long will you avenge our blood on those who still dwell on the earth? Notice that those who killed them, those who persecuted them, are still alive while they are dead. From their perspective, they got away with it. From the perspective of those on earth, these people are dead. There was no justice done for them. And it looks like the unrighteous have won and they have conquered them. But we see that it says, rest a little longer. In a sense, wait in silence for God who is your refuge. He is your avenger. He is there to bring you justice. And there is a day fixed for judgment. We know that the end has not yet come. If you were to go to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, we see the Apostle Paul speaking to a church 
that is under great affliction and they're under persecution. And Paul actually actually tells them that this affliction that they are facing has purpose because one day when Christ returns, all will see the affliction that they had on the church. The judgment that Christ passes upon them will be clear to all. It will be righteous. It will be seen to be righteous judgment. Those Christians who were beheaded and crucified and dragged through the streets, it says that Christ will be glorified in the saints. They will have their heads lifted above their enemies. And Paul says, to this end, we always pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you, and you in him, according to the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. When Christ returns, all of this will be made clear to all. Those who have been oppressed will be vindicated. Those who have afflicted the church will be shown that what they have done was unjust. They will be shown to the world as being the guilty party, and they will receive just condemnation. But it is the church who will be glorified, and they will enter into the presence of God in eternal joy. Now this applies to all of us, even on an individual scale as well. Perhaps something horrible has happened to you in the past. Perhaps a great injustice has been done to you. A great wickedness has been done to you. And perhaps from your perspective, they've gotten away with it. Nobody knows except for you, and only you carry that. But remember what Scripture tells us. For all of those with faith in Christ, all of their sins have been placed on him. Injustice has been done on our sins in Christ. And for all those who reject Christ, Christ will have justice on them. At the end of the day, justice no matter what form it takes, will have the final word. As you cry out to the Lord because of what has happened in your life, those who have afflicted you and done you wrong, you can remember that Christ has not forgotten you, that your father did not forget to see that, that he did not give those who wronged you a pass, but he will be there to bring you justice. And this is important because it undergirds our second point, and that is a silent patience. That's really the entire point of our psalm. The opening verse, they say this, For God alone my soul waits in silence, patience. From him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. Because God alone is the righteous judge of all the earth, and because it is to God alone that his people ultimately look to as their judge, they can patiently endure their suffering without resorting to the ways of their enemy, without getting loud and being wicked themselves, without returning evil for evil. In fact, David, the author of this psalm, he exhibits this perfectly. 
Perhaps we've heard the story of when David is being chased by Saul the king. We see this in Psalm or in First uh, Samuel 26. David is in the wilderness. He is with his men, and he is being chased by Saul. And it says that they come to Saul while he's encamped with his people, and he's sleeping, and he's vulnerable. And then Abishai, one of David's men, says to him, God has given you your enemy into your hand this day. Now please let me pin him to the earth with one stroke of the spear, and I will not strike him twice. But notice what David says, Do not destroy him, for who can put out his hand against the Lord's, or against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? And David said, As the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him or his day will come to die, or he will go down into battle and perish. But the Lord forbid that I should put my hand against the Lord's anointed. Now this way of thinking might be foreign to many people, especially when our time comes, when we have the opportunity that David had. For many of us, we would think just like Abishai. This is my chance. All of the wrong that has been done to me I can make this right. I can get things even. I can finally have my justice. None of David's men would have thought David wrong for that. If David went out and and had taken his chance, everybody would have applauded his justice. But David knew that taking justice into his own hand, when God had given him no right to do so, would not be a holy and a righteous justice. And so here we see David waits in silence for God, who is his refuge and his avenger. Now, how can someone be like this? How can someone take this silence? Remember once again that this silence, it refers to a meek and submissive dependence upon God. This does not mean that we have no Uh, self-preservation. This is not speaking against self-defense. It is not speaking against defending your family, anything like that. What it is saying is that we ought not seek justice outside of the bounds that God has given us. God has told us what we can do and what we cannot do. David knew that taking the life of God's anointed king was something that he was not to do. And so he allowed God to be the judge. This is something that this generation truly needs to understand. I think especially the church, as in our culture, there is so much talk about justice. It seems like every day we are talking about social justice or systemic justice and the justice that we need to have. I remember it was about this time last year, maybe a little bit over this time last year, that there was that video of the man George Floyd. I'm sure we all remember And there was the resurgence of the Black Lives Matter movement. There was calls for justice. And I know that this entire conversation is very nuanced and heated. And there are good examples. There are bad examples. There are some things that maybe are not valid. But I think there are some valid things that we can look at. And I think especially if we look at the cries for justice... There's something that we can learn from this. If you think about these movements and you think about our current situation where people are crying out for justice, notice the way that they cry for justice. 
Because really, there are two ways that you can cry for justice. There are two positions that you can take. There's one position that begins knowing that there is a perfect and righteous judge who has a day of judgment fixed and set. But then there is a position that denies that there is a perfect and righteous judge who has a day of judgment set. And those two positions, they both need justice, but they're going to react to injustice very differently. Those who take that first position or those who take that second position denying that there is a righteous judge, they will look at injustice. They will see the observation that the preacher made in Ecclesiastes when he said, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice there was wickedness. In the place of righteousness there was wickedness. They will see that. And perhaps they will say, if no one's going to do justice, then I will do justice. And they take justice into their own hands. They become the standard by what is righteous justice and what is not. And so they can validate the burning of buildings. They can validate and they can justify killing innocent people or attacking innocent people. They can validate or justify robbery or extortion. They can validate slander because if nobody else is going to bring about justice, they will do it themselves. But what does our text tell us to do? Speaking from that position, knowing that God is judge of all the world. In our psalm in verse number 10, it says, Put no trust in extortion. Set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart on them. Most commentators, they look at this passage and they say that it is essentially saying, don't answer the evil of your enemies with more evil. Look at verse number four. That describes them. It says they only plan to thrust him down from his high position. What do the enemies of God do? They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly curse. Don't be like them. Have that second cry for justice. Say, for God alone, my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. This frees them up to be angry and sin not. Saul sought David to kill him. But then later, even from Saul's own mouth, he says to David, you are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. Now this is very difficult for us. It's very difficult for me. When someone wrongs me, what do I want to do? I want to wrong them back. I want to make things even. If someone burns down the church, I want to burn something down too. If someone curses God and curses the church, I want to reply with curses. This is very natural for us. We want to inflict the same thing that has been inflicted to us. We think that that is justice and that that is fair. But that is not what this passage tells us to do. It says, answer not your enemies with more evil. This passage teaches us that we are never to adopt the world's method of fighting when we are confronted with the unjust. Instead, 
We are to wait for God's justice and a meek and submissive dependence upon God alone. And this results in a peaceful composure, both in words and actions. How are you able to love your enemies when they attack you? Do you have to sacrifice justice for that? No, it's understanding that God is judge that gives us the freedom to love our enemies and to do good to those who hate us. And of course, this, mo- this is modeled most perfectly by our Christ, our Savior, who is a silent Savior. In fact, we saw this in our scripture lesson a moment ago. Throughout the trial of Jesus, throughout his crucifixion, notice his words. Notice that he is being obedient to the Father, even into death. So what does he do? He makes no argument to free himself. He makes no plan of escape. He uses no force or power to save himself. It's not because he was without power. This is the Son of God. Through him were all things created. All things were created for him. And by him all things exist and are held together. This is the Son of God. But why did he submit himself to this? It is because he trusted in his Father for his deliverance. He knew the mission and the purpose that the Father had given him. He desired justice. He desired to be vindicated and to be brought above his enemies. But he knew that it would be through his Father's deliverance and not by him taking things into his own hand. Remember his arrest in John chapter 18. You have Judas who has betrayed him and he's brought this band of soldiers and people, officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees and they come after Jesus and they're seeking to arrest him. Jesus asks them, who do you seek? And they say, Jesus, son of Nazareth. Jesus says, I am he. They fall to the ground. He asks again, who do you seek? They say, Jesus, son of Nazareth. And what happens after this? Well, the text says that Simon Peter, having a sword, he drew it and he struck the high priest's servant and cut off his ear. But what does Jesus say to Peter? He says, put your sword in its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? We have this disciple, Peter. He has great zeal for his God. He has great courage for his Lord. There are all these men here, armed soldiers, And he takes up his sword and he's ready to defend Christ. He does something very courageous and very zealous. But notice that it is not what God desires. Any sort of zeal and courage that we have for the Lord, if it is not according to God's command, then it loses all of its virtue. There are many people in the world who commit all kinds of acts that they may call zealous, and courageous and they may do this in the name of christ saying i am doing this for the lord but if it goes against god's command it is not zealous it is not courageous it is not righteous the greatest zeal that we can have is what christ had a humble submission to the will of the father that said the justice over the father over 
the justice of Peter and his sword. We must have this Christ-likeness. We must be able to sing this psalm in truthfulness. Throughout the psalm, we see God alone, Him only. It's brought up over and over again. We see this in verses 1 and 2, and then again in verses 5 and 6. When Christ went to the cross, He trusted in His Father only for His deliverance. If you remember when he's on the cross, he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is Psalm 22. This is a psalm that we have sung many times. That's the beginning of the psalm, but remember how it continues. If you were to go to that psalm and look eventually, it says, But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him. All you offspring of Israel, for he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. See, many people hear that cry of Jesus, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And they think that the Father has completely forsaken Jesus, and Jesus is on his own. But that's the beginning of the psalm. That shows what Christ is feeling on the cross. The enemies are coming against him. He is crying out for deliverance. And it ends saying, you have not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. His father has not hidden his face from him, but he has heard when he cried out to him. Christ is raised above his enemies. His justice does come in the vindication of the resurrection. When the father raises the son from the dead, when the Father gives him a kingdom encompassing all the nations of the world, it is shown that he was not forsaken by God. It was shown that he was not absent of justice. All of those who took Jesus off the cross and perhaps they thought all those things he said, he was so easy to kill. We got rid of him and nothing happened to us. But we know that that is not the end of the story. Christ was resurrected. He was vindicated. His justice was made clear to all. And those dogs who encompassed him, those bulls who surrounded him, as we see in the psalm, God had vengeance upon them. And Christ was vindicated before their eyes. Let us remember this when we are afflicted. Let us remember this when we see the enemies of the church. Let this be how we live when we face the troubles of injustice. Don't take matters into your own hands in ways that go against what the Lord has told us to do. Again, this doesn't mean that self-defense is invalid. You remember Peter had a sword for a good reason. There were times when it would have been necessary. 
But at that moment, there is a certain mission that the son had from the father. And so at that time, it was wrong. In our lives, there are ways that we should speak. We should cry out for justice. We should take every lawful and righteous means that we have to establish justice in this world. Those are good things, and we should encourage them, and we must do them in a godly way to seek justice. But we must never forget that if it seems like we are not able to get justice in a righteous way, if it seems that we must resort to the ways of the enemy, let us remember then that we wait in humble submission to the Lord. We are able to wait in silence because we have a Father who is judge of all the earth. Knowing that God one day will answer the cries of his people allows them to wait for them in silence without losing their minds, going crazy thinking, I'll never have justice. This frees us to forgive those who have wronged us. This frees us to love our enemies and to let go of bitterness and hatred, knowing that God will make matters right in his own timing. As it was for Christ, so it will be for us. Our vindication will come. Christ was beaten, mocked, and humiliated. But three days later, he was resurrected. His deliverance and his victory over death in the grave were made known to all. So as we follow Christ, let us trust in our God and exemplify the silence that we see in our Savior, that meek and submissive dependence upon God alone that results in a peaceful and righteous composure with obedience in our words and our actions. In this way, we can glorify God before all this world rather than put him to shame in front of his enemies. Let us be like Christ, waiting in silence for the deliverance of our Father. Would you join me in prayer? Dear Heavenly Father, God, it is hard for us to remain silent when people are yelling at us. Lord, it is hard for us to be silent when people misrepresent, lie, abuse our brothers and sisters. Father, even just in day-to-day situations, it is hard for us to not lash out in anger when a coworker wrongs us or lies about us or does some other sort of injustice against us. God, and we have people in our past who have been horribly wicked to us. Things like love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, they seem impossible to us. But God, we know that these things are only possible if we're able to give justice into your hands. Father, I pray that you would show this to your church. God, as we live in days where we feel that many are against us, as we feel like there are divisions and lies and hatred and people yelling and screaming back and forth, God, often we are tempted to join the yelling and the screaming, the name-calling and the slandering. But Father, I pray that you would remind us of the way that we're supposed to live. God, I ask that you would instruct us as we see Christ, the perfect man, 
who shows us what it is to live a righteous life. Father, I pray that we would be like him. I pray that as we desire justice, as we desire to seek justice, I pray that we would never be tempted to venture off into areas that you have forbidden, thinking that if you will not do it, then we will ourselves. But God, I pray that you would give us patience, that you would give us faith in you. And Father, I pray that your kingdom would come and that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. So Father, I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.